Welcome to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Well, today, um, quickly, we are just going to go into our passage. Uh, we are going to look into a story, a passage in Matthew 20, verse 20 to 28. Then the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons. She knelt respectfully to ask a favour. What is your request? He asked. She replied, In your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in all places of honour next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. But Jesus answered by saying to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? Yes, they replied, We are able. Jesus told them, You will indeed drink from my bitter cup, but I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. My Father has prepared those places for the ones He has chosen. When the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. But Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, Let's pray as we start. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word will accomplish all that it is set out to do and will not return to you void. And we pray for good hearts, good ground in our hearts to receive all that you are saying and depositing into our lives today. And may it uh, be watered, Lord, with uh, your Holy Spirit, Lord, with, uh, even with our tenderness, our uh, obedience, that it may grow strong and bear fruit that will last and that will bring you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so here we find ourselves in this passage, we find ourselves in the midst of a power struggle amongst the disciples. James and John's mother had asked for a place of power for both her sons. And isn't that what mothers do best, right? How come my, my son don't have that? I mean, hands up, I'm one of those. Right? Teacher, I think Travis needs to sit a little bit more in front, you know? And that's what mothers do, right? We try to, to get the best for our children. And when the other disciples heard this, this whole thing going on, they too join in the argument, probably upset with themselves for not asking first, right? And so Jesus hears all this. He gathers them and in verse 25, he says, you know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. Well, our world as uh, mirrored in this passage is one where there's a perpetual shove to the top of the heap. There's always a climb to the top of the ladder. There is a fierce and constant competition for the best seats. It's a dog-eat-dog world. I wonder why they use that to describe us. But a Bana group study revealed that out of 2,000 people in each category, 43% of Gen Zs and 35% of Millennials view personal success as, as most important to their identity and sense of self. Having something to show and garnering some form of influence were vital to how they viewed themselves and how they thought people will view them. So we spend tremendous amounts of time. There's always self-help. There's always a, a, a way to uh, unleash your power, unleash your potential kind of uh, conference, right? We, we spend a lot of time, energy, resources to try to polish our reputation, uh, polish our skills and our giftings, and all these are good. 
And it's natural for people to seek power for self-aggrandizement or for self-promotion. And this was a true long before Charles Darwin even made famous the term survival of the fittest. People are impressed by human power. We all have a tendency to favor the one who has the ability to make things happen. And whether we realize it or not, we all build big or little kingdoms around ourselves where we are the king, the one in power. You know, and we have minions or people who do what we say, people who are influenced by what we think, what we say, what we do. We do have our little kingdoms, whether we realize it or not. Sociologists uh, Stanford Gregory and Stephen Webster of Kent State University conducted some research into power in a very, at a very simple level. They studied interviews on the Lever, uh, Larry King live show. I don't know if you know Larry King. Interesting guy. Uh, and tapes of British politicians and former US presidents. So what they studied were the low-frequency sounds that we all utter as we speak. Gregory and Webster found that in conversations and meetings, people rapidly match each other's frequency. So in short, to have a productive meeting, to have a productive conversation, we literally have to be on the same wavelength. And the researchers found that lower-status people match the higher-status people in the room. You might expect that in a group like that, everyone would just meet in the middle, but that was not the case. And so, for example, when Larry King was interviewing someone of very high status, he matched the high status person's individual tones. And when the interviewee was somebody of low status or just a commoner, not a celebrity or even a B-grade celebrity, they, he or she, would match Larry King's tones. People were unconsciously sorting out who the most powerful person in the room was. So relative status is actually important to us and it trickles down to our daily things like picking members for a team sport or for a game, right? Negotiating in business meetings, meeting new people in a social setting, uh, even dynamics in the workplace. We either assert ourselves on someone or we defer to someone. Right? And so back to our passage here, Jesus acknowledges that he describes this uh, rampant power culture in this world. And he says to them, But among you, next one please, but among you it will be different. Among you it will be different. Here Jesus calls out his disciples. He makes a distinguishment between the world and his disciples. And if there's anything we have learned in the last seven weeks of our uh, study in First Peter sermon series, is that we are exiles in the world. And, and we are we who were once not a people, but now a people of God. We who are caught in a tension of in and but not being part of the world. Uh, the world operates this way, but Jesus says, among you, among you disciples of Jesus, among us exiles in this world, it will be different. It must be different. Right? He then lays the blueprint for greatness, for leadership, for success. He says in the second part of verse 26, whoever wants to be a leader among you must be a servant and whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. You know, in the New Testament, we encounter many of what Bible scholars call the law of reversal. And we see that in instances like when Jesus said, the first shall be the last, the last shall be the first. 
you are, we are to save our lives by losing them. We are to love our enemies. We are to forgive our debtors. And here Jesus reveals and introduces yet another startling one, that we become great by being servants. And so this morning, I just want to delve a little bit about servanthood. I want to share on the sacredness of servanthood. Jesus first speaks of the servant. A servant is one who freely, put, who freely puts himself under the disposition of others. A servant takes the lowly and the humble place. And then if it's not enough, Jesus, who likes to shock and awe, right? He radicalizes his statement with the image of a slave, a non-person, if you may, an object you could purchase with the price of a pair of sandals who has no rights, exists no existence of his own, living solely for others. And this was a shocking truth to the disciples. It was a shocking thing to hear because the lives and privileges of the rich and the powerful in those times were so drastically different from the common folk, let alone a servant and a slave. And it's unthinkable to associate being great with being relegated to a, stater, a servant status. Even the words servant and slave are no less offensive to our cultural and social, and social uh, sensibilities, even in our times. It is everything we go against. It denotes inequality, being less important, subservience to obey, the silencing of an individual voice. It is the loss of independence, individual rights, our truths, our autonomy. It violates our 21st century wokeness. Right? It is uncouth, barbaric even, to think of being a servant and a slave. Even in Christendom, it opposes the we are the first and not the last, we are victorious conquerors, uh, we are seated in high places kind of rhetoric. It opposes that. And servanthood sounds like a, a concept that should have been abolished and left behind long ago. It is an archaic notion that we should be subject to one another. In the world, being a servant suggests you are in a disadvantageous position, not worthy to be seated among the big boys. It suggests that our only value is how useful we are to the people above us, a mere pawn in their power games, seemingly further cementing the unconscious deference to those who assert power over us. And yet, in the midst of all this power play, Jesus appeals to us, his followers, his disciples, exiles in this world, that, that to the world, greatness is attained by competing with others, by establishing dominance over others, and by setting ourselves apart from others. But to us, ex exiles in a world eager to, to form the mighty and celebrate the imposing, this is the summons of Jesus, that we serve one another. He calls us to no longer view people as other, as though they are different, separate objects of our competition, but one another, an extension, an addition, a part of ourselves. And so with this, our approach to living is no longer centered around our own desires, wants, uh, ambitions. Instead, we take heed Paul's plea in Philippians chapter 2 to don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude as Jesus. 
This summons is counter-cultural in the first century AD as it is today, and it should change the way we view people and impact every relationship and situation we have. It is a postural attitude we are demanded to live by. And I want to read you this quote by uh, Dallas Willard. What is a city sermon without a Dallas Willard quote? So this is one for the books. <laughs> no, but it's a good one. Being a servant is not a matter of particular acts. Being a servant is a matter of our whole lives. We live as servants, receiving everything we need from the, from the kingdom of God. We don't keep our kingdoms to ourselves, living only for self and occasionally doing an act of service. We live as servants and as we do that, it frees us to enter into a different attitude towards life. Jesus invites us into this new identity, this new way of living, this whole new value system based on the kingdom of God. It opposes the system of, of this world. It opposes our fleshly inclinations. And, but we who are following Jesus, we who are called exiles in this world, are, in, are invited into this new way of being. In this upside-down kingdom, or right-side-up, if you may. Servanthood. Humility and self-sacrifice line the ironic road to greatness. In this kingdom, the lowly place is the greater place. So does this mean that God doesn't want us to be successful or powerful or influential? The answer is absolutely not, right? Power, influence and success subjugated, brought under the dominion of God, brings fruit of justice, righteousness, peace, what Jesus is addressing here is the allure of the spirit of mammon, the lust and the greed for excesses. It is insatiable, building on the foundation and the expenses of others. This is what Jesus is addressing. And he warns about this in Matthew 6, where he says, no one can serve two masters. You either love one or you hate the other. You either are loyal to one or you despise the other, but no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and mammon. And this is what he's calling us today. When we choose to take the place of a servant, we are freed from trying to accumulate for ourselves. We are freed from trying to please others or you know, to, to uh, prove ourselves, trying to secure some kind of semblance of control in our lives. We no longer live out of a scarcity mentality. If I give, what about me? If I, if I share, what about me? We no longer have to do, have more and more for ourselves because instead, we come to understand that freely we have received from the kingdom of God. So freely, we can give. A word of caution also though that this call is to servanthood. It's not to servility. A servant who is one who serves voluntarily or out of their own compulsion, who labours and exerts himself for the benefit of another or his master. But to be servile means an excessive willingness to please or serve others, hence overly fawning and overly obedient. A common misunderstanding is that Christians are called to be servile, to think poorly of themselves, to always not aspire, not to aspire for greatness. Jesus did not say that. Jesus did not ask of that. What he asked is for us to take on the disposition of a servant, a person whose chief concern is the well-being of, an, of another. The servile person is concerned about himself or herself to win the favour of others by being overly willing or obedient, but the servant is concerned about the health and the welfare of another. Servanthood is also not a stepping stone. 
we may sometimes think of our service as something that, of something that qualifies us, that is a gauge of how good a person or how talented a person we are. It's easy to use our service to establish our status, whether in church or outside, right? The I do more so I am more mentality. Uh, back in the days when we, I was in youth ministry uh, in our previous church, uh, our church was quite large, and our youth ministry was about 400 plus at its height, its peak. And there were, no joke, no exaggeration, there were about, about 300 people in serving in ministries. And I was the head of ministries. I was the ministry head of ministry heads. So I literally had 300 people at my back and call every Sunday. And that is um, on top of the other responsibilities I took on in the main church. And uh, I had this uh, habit of... Uh, standing, because ch the church is like an incline, right? It's a slope down. I had a habit of standing right at the top of one of the corners. And every time there's like a big event or like something we did, like maybe like a drama, something like that within the service. And at the end of it, or like towards the end, I would stand in the back and I observe my kingdom. <laughs> and I was like, this went so well because of my talent. Like I was, I was administrative, I was creative. I thought of that, like everything went well, All the, everyone was doing their part, everyone was listening to instructions. Like, well done, Christine, right? It doesn't help that my name, Christine, means servant of God. What a perfect person to be in charge of ministry, right? Like, servant of God, serving the house of God, whoa. <laughs> and I used to think that, I mean, honestly, okay, I used to think like, all oh, these women, what would Pastor Daniel do without me? Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and we, and I had the mentality: I do more because I am more. And every time, uh, and uh, like a responsibility was stripped away from me, I felt like a part of my identity stripped away because I had this mentality. It was servanthood was a stepping stone for me. Now I've changed. Promise, like the redemption of God is real. Uh, now I would sit at this corner. I think many of you would know. So I sit at this corner after service, just exhausted. Uh, and the only thing I'm thinking about is I want to eat something spicy and go home and have a nap. So that's probably what I'll do later also. Yeah, but that's the power of change. And so, you know, sometimes we, we might use our service to call into question the commitment of others, right? Who do not serve in the same way as us. We become like the Pharisees who only have an outward form of devotion and service and despise those who cannot or don't display the same level of devotion as them. All these examples use service as a crutch, as a means to an end. And we have this quote by Henry Nowen, another one for the books, a city sermon is complete now. We forget that service outside of God becomes self-seeking and self-seeking service leads to manipulation and manipulation to power games and power games to violence and violence to destruction even when it falls under the name of ministry. Only when all our service finds its source and goal in God can we be free from the desire for power and proceed to serve our neighbours for their sake and not for our own. And how many of us have been either the perpetrator or the victim of such self-seeking service, right? Well, this summons to serve one another, this paradoxical, radical summons of Jesus would be impossible if it were not for the fact that Jesus himself demonstrated it with his life. In verse 28, 
Matthew said, for even the son, uh, Jesus said, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. So how did Jesus show that? And in the next few passages, let's look at how Jesus demonstrated servanthood. In Philippians 2, further down in the passage, in verse 8, in verse 6, Paul says, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Jesus came to earth not as a fearsome king as many hoped he would have, but as a helpless babe that he may be obedient to the will of the Father. He did not come wielding his privileges as the son of God, but he came in servitude to mankind as a son of man. And the next example we see, we have Jesus being tempted by the devil in the wilderness. The devil took him up high, showed him the kingdoms of the world, and said that he will give Jesus all the glory and authority over them if he were to worship him. And in verse 8, Jesus replied, You must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. In the face of instant glory, power, and authority, without the pain, of the cross, Jesus subjected himself to the position of a humble servant, serving the will of his master. He had no agenda of his own, no private kingdoms to build. He would only serve the purpose of his father. And then in the next example, it is, we have Jesus at his last night with his disciples. He sends his time of death approaching and he got up from supper to wash the disciples' feet. And as, he done, and as he finishes up, in verse 15, he says, I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor the messenger more important than the one who sends the message. At his impending death, Jesus' last words, and if we call Jesus our master and our Lord, then we need to do what he said to serve one another. There is no parable, no deep theological debate here. Plain and simple, he has given us an example and we are to follow. You see, servanthood can never be an optional in the Christian life. It is a foundation stone and all disciples of Jesus must see themselves as servants. And of course, Jesus in the next day would provide the ultimate example of servanthood. And it is Jesus Christ in his incarnation and sacrificial death who is the final model and motivation for this radical servanthood. He led by serving and he loved by serving. And servanthood might be a dirty word in the world that flatters and praises the powerful. And it may seem foolish to the human understanding. But servanthood becomes holy. It becomes sacred when we begin to see it as the way to encounter Jesus, that it is his central way of revealing himself to us. He is the love-drenched servant to all. How then can we begin to encounter Jesus in this revelation? How do we shift from doing mindless service, just Christian duty on a Sunday, or the bare minimum, into living out servanthood? To wrap up, there are three realizations we must come to have. And very quickly, the first one, serving is a gift. We must realize that serving is a gift. In 1 Peter 4, God has given us a gift from a variety of his spiritual gifts, and he asks us to use them well to serve one another. 
all of us are gifted and we see some of these gifts listed in Romans and 1 Corinthians. And these cannot be wrought by our own personalities, our abilities or our talents. These are a gift. And, and we receive these gifts for a specific reason. And 1 Corinthians tells us it's for helping and for equipping the church. It is not for our own pleasure. It is to serve the people of God. Right? And, and just looking at the gifts and discovering your gifts and finding out what your gift sets are is not enough. Stewarding your gift is more important because we are to give an accountability of our gifts to our master. And spiritual gifts only work in spiritual ways. This is the realization I hope we have. Spiritual gifts are designed to fulfill its full potential when it's empowered by the Holy Spirit. And guess what else is a gift? The Holy Spirit, right? But most of us would revere and would hold and steward the, the, the receiving of the Holy Spirit more than our serving gifts. But what if we value our serving gifts in the same way, with that same reverence, knowing that it is a gift given to, from God, it's not our own self-made talent. The way we serve will change. It's no longer just viewed as something you can do well and so you help law you know, in, the, in the place. But if it's partnered with the empowering of the Holy Spirit, imagine the impact it will have, not just in your own life, but in the lives of others. Imagine, imagine an usher being filled with the Holy Spirit and having words of knowledge and having a heart that is so stirred up by God and the passion of God that everybody who comes in here will feel loved by God because they have come across this usher, uh, this hospitality team member that says hi in such a spirit-filled way. Imagine worship leaders and teams and just being in the river of God because everyone is, is just being drenched with the Holy Spirit, being led together in the river of the Holy Spirit. Imagine the impact it will have, not just in the local church, but in your own lives. When you sit in a taxi and you talk to a taxi uncle, or when you do your work and you do it overflowing with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The second realization we must have about serving is it is a mark of discipleship. And in James here, we have what I call a keep it real kind of verse. I love it. In James chapter 2, verse 14 to 18, it says, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing and you say, goodbye, have a good day, eat well and keep warm or I will pray for you. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough it, unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. Now someone may argue, some people have faith. Some people have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. So as we mature spiritually in our faith and in our walk with God, it ought to produce an outworking, a manifestation of an inward transformation. It's not just about enjoying the perks of freedom, of healing, of eternal life, of the miraculous. In Galatians, Paul exhorts us to please use our freedom to serve one another, another and not just for our own selfish gains. You see, the essence of discipleship is not in the enjoyment of privilege, but in the rendering of service to others. There ought to be fruit to becoming like Jesus. To become like Jesus is to grow, to do what He does, to obey what He says. It means that serving now is no longer limited to just Sunday, a church, or a once-in-a-year fundraiser. Serving is a marker 
of a dying to self and the taking up of the cross and the following of Jesus. It is an expression of Christ-likeness and we are never more like Jesus than when we serve. Lastly, the third realisation we must have about serving is that it is a call to surrender. In the New Testament, we see Paul, Timothy, uh, James, Jude referring to themselves not just as servants, but as born servants. A born servant referred to one who held a permanent position of servitude. In the seventh year of a servant's born, he is allowed to go free. But the Mosaic law allowed for an indentured servant to uh, stay for life, to be a born servant to his master for life. His master had to take him to the doorpost or the door of his house, pierce his ear with an owl, you know, and that is a declaration of this servant is mine for life. The master marks the servant and this act symbolises a surrender, a giving up of the servant's own life. He renounces all other masters and pledges allegiance to only his master. From then on, the servant has to trust his master to take care of him. His life is no longer his own. He does not get to dictate what he does, where he goes. In essence, essentially, servanthood is the embodiment of Galatians 2.20, that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And in this earthly body, I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is the embodiment of servanthood. And to embrace servanthood is to embrace surrender. To lose the heavy burden of control, reputation, maintenance, self-sufficiency. We do not have to fight for a place of power like the world does. We do not have to live through cycles of tiresome cycles of sustaining and maintaining all that we have accumulated. Instead, we take on his easy yoke of surrender, relinquishing ourselves to the master. We are postured, the attentive and inclining towards him, always watching, listening, discerning the master's will. And then we trust and respond to any direction he gives us until we become so well acquainted with our master that our lives become an extension of him. I like this old hymn that says, Take my life and let it be. It's a long hymn, but I just have three up there. Consecrated Lord to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in scissors' praise. Till our lives echo his life, till his every movement is echoed within our own lives. You see, friends, as we begin to walk in servitude with one another and with Jesus, we venture into this great mystery of servanthood that Jesus revealed in John 15 when he said, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all the things I've heard from my father I have made known to you. Here we see that servanthood and friendship are no longer distinct and that in serving we find our true self, our true identity. We become one in whom God reveals his heart to, his desires, his likes, his preferences, his motivation. We come to know as we are known. We begin to understand that the oneness and the intimacy that we so desire with Jesus comes only through the lowly, humble troughs of servanthood. Can I just ask the band on stage as we close? First closing. 
All our lives, we will always fight the allure of reclaiming our kingdoms, our scepter of power, if you may. Servanthood antagonizes our fleshly inclinations. Antagonizes, it opposes it. Our democratic flesh and will cry out against the subjugation of our spirit. It opposes it. And this lure, this allure of the spirit of mammon for the excesses of life will always come at us. Always. But if we were to hold fast to the summons of Jesus, who is the servant to all, who have set an example for him and follow in his, in his way of serving, we will find that servanthood is the most powerful position to be in. It is where we belong is where we were always meant to be. And in closing, I just want to just read this quote. And as we read, let's do this slowly. And let's ponder this in our lives. The temptations of being relevant, spectacular and powerful are real temptations and stay with us all of our lives. They are strong because they play directly on our desire to join others on the upwardly mobile road. But when we are able to recognize these temptations as seductive attempts to cling to the illusions of the false self, they can become instead invitations to claim our true self, which is hidden in God's love and in God alone. When we find ourselves able to continue to serve our fellow human beings, even when our lives remain the same, even when few people offer us praise, and even when we have little or no power, we come to know ourselves as God knows us, sons and daughters hidden in His love. We do not belong to the world. We belong to God. We always will be tempted in one way or another to reclaim the old self and to reject the foolish way of the cross. But we become, we become true followers of Jesus Christ each time we take His word on our lips and say to the tempter, Be off, Satan. You must worship the Lord your God and serve Him alone. And this is the invitation Jesus offers today. To lay down our need for futile and ins insatiable need for human power and control. And to come experience this selfless way of living with Him through the beauty, the holiness and the sacredness of servanthood. To consider that the lowly place is the greater place. That we will be willing to be made willing to serve whomever, at wherever, doing whatever He calls us to. Today He desires to draw us into this low place that He has went before through the troughs of servanthood the bending of ourselves to get through it 
It is a narrow way. It is a low way. It's a way where you have to release your excess baggages, the things that you have accumulated for yourself. It's a way where you can't go in standing and proud and arrogantly. It's a way where you have to be bent, where you have to let go. And He invites us to this, to this greater place. And would we respond to Him today to not just serve or have our view of service as just the little acts of things that we do to, of kindness, be however good they are, but that we will come into a permanent position of servitude onto our Master and all and whoever He has called us to. Would we come to that place willingly to the doorpost of our Master's house and say, pierce your all through my ear that I may be yours forever, that I may be at your service for the rest of my life. Can I just invite every one of you to stand and if you are at home, just to be in a posture of worship, of receiving. This morning before I pray for all of us, I, can I just get you to take a position of surrender, whether it's um, putting your hands out in front of you, kneeling, putting your hands on your heart, your arms wide open, any posture of surrender that, that, that's, that reflects your heart position now. And even as David leads us in the chorus of this song, uh, just one or two times and even as we, we, he sings over us, even as the band plays over us, just begin to respond to your master in your own way. Surrendering yourself. Consider the little kingdoms that you have built up around yourselves and for yourselves. And asking him to tear those down. To relinquish all those that you might come to that place where you are reliant and dependent or needing to trust in your master for the rest of your life. Being born servants, slaves to Christ. Where the things of this world will no longer satisfy and everything that you have been chasing it becomes futile. In the light of His glory, in the light of all that He has to offer, We just take this time to just speak to God.